0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Alex Hoyer. Today we're talking with two St. Louisans who are taking their ideas and expertise around the globe to help the mental health needs of refugees living in southeastern Bangladesh. Since 2017, more than 740,000 refugees have fled violence in Myanmar. More than half of them are children. Joining me in studio are Dr. Anne Glowinski and Dr. Rupa Patel. They're both physicians at Washington University School of Medicine. Glowinski is a professor of psychiatry and Patel is an assistant professor of medicine. And a bit of a warning before we begin, there may be some discussions of violence that are inappropriate for some listeners. Doctors Glowinski and Patel, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Dr. Patel, I want to start with you because this is happening very much on the other side of the world. And I imagine there's a lot of people that might have heard that there's a crisis there, but what is the crisis
2: yeah so in um you know just to set the backdrop in um august 2016 or 2017 there was um more than usual activity across the border and there were uh, rohingyas both muslim and hindu that crossed the border from myanmar into bangladesh what needs to be also understood is that there was movement across the border before. There have been three other waves of uh, immig- refugee traffic from Myanmar to Bangladesh, starting as early as 1991. Mm-hmm. And so, but the recent situation brought more people than usual. There were um, around 700,000. So at that earliest time, there was around three or four hundred thousand that came over, and then to this day close to uh, around 800,000 individuals, making a total of 1.2 million people thought to be in Bangladesh that came from Myanmar to create the world's largest refugee camp. There are certain factors that are important around this. It's it's not a natural disaster situation like a tsunami or a earthquake. It is, um, you know, a violent, um, situation where it's thought that the Myanmar government, um, and it's not thought anymore, there was a United Nations fact-finding mission that basically came to the conclusion that um, at the orders of the highest level of the Myanmar military, that um, there was an intention to harm individuals um, living in the Rohingya area, the Rakhine state, um, Mm -hmm. in deliberate and properly organized attacks um where that involved um you know violent situations um and this is the warning to the to the uh, readers as well where you had um burning of villages you had deliberate raping of women um deliberate um um harming of children um and gruesome acts such as um you know, sexual violence, including uh, cutting off breasts, raping young kids. Um, And so the second alarming thing is, is the amount of people in one area. This is the world's largest refugee camp. And I think people need to know that the natural history of a refugee camp is not one or two years, it's 10 to 20 years. So you have a group of individuals that are essentially stateless, so they don't have a nationality or an acceptance to go into Myanmar by the Myanmar military or the government and then also that in Bangladesh. So you have a mm -hmm. stateless group of people.
0: Why aren't they accepted in Myanmar?
2: Um, So back in the, you know, throughout history, um, you know, in the 1970s, there was a large push for um, the ethnic communities, not just the Rohingya. Even the Christians in Kachin State to to not be a part of the Myanmar citizenship and their you know the citizenship they held was revoked, um, and so they were given cards just to identify them as an ethnic minority, and so they weren't given the same privileges, um, monetarily or non monetarily, as you would have Buddhist nationals.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask both of you this, but start with you, Dr. Patel. How did you get involved with this?
2: Yeah, so I I am um, you know uh, a clinician uh, by trade. So I've done a, a medical degree and I, I give clinical care. But I'm also a public health um, practicer and specialist by trade as well. So. Um, I have actually been in Bangladesh for the last 10 years. Uh, 2007, I went for Cyclone Sitter to help with the humanitarian response after that national disaster where I focused on um, building programs for women, health and non-health. And I think we need to, in all settings, we need to realize public health, you know, the gateway into coming to see a doctor for you know, a rash on an arm or something is the opening to discover the woman is facing domestic violence or etc. And so you quickly have to create a comprehensive care system where you're offering non-health services, um, financial education, um, things related to sexual violence, especially in countries in in the Indian subcontinent. So that's where my... um, My initial uh, time was in 2007, and then I stayed the whole time to continue that women's development program. And I I work with um, or I volunteer with an organization called Friends in Village Development Bangladesh. It started in 1978, and um, it was born out of the need to help communities after Bangladesh had created its independence in 1971. Also of a, a nation in the victim of genocide, which I think is very important um, in terms of the Bangladeshis, um, you know, the, the people to understand what others are going through when they face violent attacks um, based on someone's race or ethnicity or religion. And so I've been there since and then it was a natural segue for the same organization to move into this certain region of Cox's Bazar and these refugee camps in southeastern Bangladesh and to ask for my advisorship on how to respond to humanity humanitarian crisis related to violence.
0: And Dr. Glowinski, how did you get involved?
1: So my story is a little bit different. Um, I am a child psychiatrist, but I also have public health and epidemiology background. I also have three children, which had limited a lot my travel and use of these particular backgrounds. What you may not know is that uh, child mental health in particular is the most underserved area in the world. So... I've always known that my needs would be, my my services could be needed. But seren- serendipitously, I ran into Rupa, we were friends, um, and she had just heard from FIVDB that uh, not only did they need her help, but they were also trying to address the vast mental health need of the refugee population. So when she first talked to me about this, I don't think she imagined or I imagined that I would get this involved. The foot in the door was that I had a trainee who was very interested in global health uh, and at the time could travel because uh, he was finishing his residency and he had some time. And as we were preparing him, to go to Bangladesh, it became unconscionable for me to not go with him. So that's that's really what happened, you know. I, I started realizing that there were so many unknowns in this situation and that really I had a lot more training than him and that I should mentor him in this particular situation. But my first travel was almost exploratory to sort of see what 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 the situation would be like. She has a lot of, Dr. Patel has a lot of experience working with NGOs, as she has told you. This one in particular, for me, this was uh, a new experience.
0: Dr. Patel, you were describing some of the gruesome physical violence and uh, Uh, Dr. Glunski, you're describing the need for mental health services, specifically with children. And uh, that's the thing about mental health is that it is uh, very much invisible. You can't often see uh, how one's mental health or issues that they're having are affecting them. How is the physical care
1: first? So this is a really important point that you're making. You know, I think that initially there are so many things that conspire for mental health to be overlooked, right? Because there's so much physical need: safety, the water needs to be drinkable, uh, people need to be vaccinated, people are having babies. <laughs> there, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things happening. I think that there was a situation here because the scope of what had happened to these people, the ethnic cleansing that she referred to, Uh, was so unimaginably brutal. I mean, it's happened before, but it was brutal. So people knew that they had gone through a lot. And in addition, my understanding is that initially, people were almost scared to accept help because they were so touchy. Things had happened to them and so they were, it was difficult to render help to people even for other things because of the mental health
0: symptoms what kinds of symptoms do they have? Mental health system uh, symptoms?
1: I I think the first thing that were observed were that uh, children were crying around strangers, that they were very shy, they were hiding. Uh, Mothers were often uh, uh, also very, very distressed uh, around strangers. I think we heard that especially when people from the Bangladeshi government were wearing uniforms. It was what we call triggering for the Rohingya population. So those those were some of the symptoms, a lot of anxiety.
0: I imagine some post-traumatic stress disorder would be
1: factored into this as well. So I think we can both talk about that. There hasn't been a very systematic exploration of the symptoms for the new refugees, but there had been a study of the people that she had alluded to who had trickled through the border over the last 40 years. And in this particular group, even though it's a group that had been subjected to far less concentrated trauma, so they had violation of their human rights and they were considered second-class citizens, not not even citizens. but uh, So they were dehumanized, but they hadn't been subjected to the same level of violence. So in this group, there was already a high level of anxiety, depression, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress uh, symptoms, yes.
0: Are they willing to talk about their experiences? I think it would be very tough to do so.
1: They're very, so, they're very willing to talk about it for the most part. I think that uh, that creates a situation, even for the people who work in the trenches, immediately that, Um, Because one of the things that happen with trauma is that you often repeat the same narrative over and over. Not only are they willing, but it's like a record that keeps playing for a lot of them.
0: We're talking with Drs. Ann Glowinski and Rupa Patel, two WashU physicians with an international reach as they seek to support Rohingya refugees. We'll be back to continue this conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to Drs. Ann Glowinski and Dr. Rupa Patel. We're talking about Uh, Rohingya refugees who have fled at Myanmar into uh, Bangladesh and their work in helping them. Dr. Patel, what do these camps look like?
2: So um, I think if someone's been to Southeast Asia, they look like um, a slum in Delhi or Mumbai, meaning you walk in and there are um, uh, tents kind of set up, or even in some cases, uh, tin sides. Uh, four walls um, with tin roofing or plastic roofing, and they're very close to each other. Visual description: They're very, very close to each other. These these tents, and then they're even stacked on top of each other. The terrain is um, a hilly area, small hills, but so um, you can see kind of terracing of the the area. Um, there's an immense more, uh, amount of people uh, on you know. On the roads, sitting in the tents, um, there's a lot of activity. You'll see children playing or crying. Um, there's and there's storefronts. There's markets within this area uh, where people are, um, you know, buying and selling goods. Um, is the camp
0: itself safe?
2: Um, I I think that everything is being done to improve the safety of the camps. Um, and I think that's a a term that's hard to really say when you when you don't live there and you don't spend every day there. Um, I think there are different layers of safety. So I'd I'd love to talk about that as public health and in a camp. One is just light. Is there enough lights or are there solar powered lights so that men and women can go to the bathroom um, and and have some safety um, with that. And so I think there's there's an immense amount of energy going into safety for daytime and nighttime in terms of light, enough, you know, bodyguards or, or, you know, um, night watch people. You know, when you read the latest report this week of, um, and this is a plug for looking at humanitarian um, Bangladesh response, it's the official United States, United Nations um, website, and they have weekly reports. You know, they've created community night watch um, guards uh, and about, uh, you know, 5,000 of them minimum um, in each camp. And these are, these are different public health community level initiatives. Um, so that's one layer of safety that's created. But, but there's other layers that, you know, we don't know about, which is organized crime, trafficking, um, sexual abuse. Um, so just so people know, in a humanitarian response, there's actually an entire sector called protection. And all you're supposed to do is look at that. Are there enough lights? And they actually inventory each camp and each grid, and they find, is there enough light? And if there's a desert, meaning not you know an area of darkness or not enough light, do you put that there? And, and within the resources you have. Um, so I, I want to say there's two layers to look at this, and I think there's things that, that are um, hard to prevent, such as that organized crime and trafficking But then there's other layers of daytime safety with friendly spaces for women and children and gender-based violence, case management, and and these lights.
0: I want to get a little bit later to the international response to what's going on there. But uh, Dr. Glowinski, I think that when we think of mental health services, we think of somebody going to an office, a very professional environment. Can you walk us through how maybe a typical interaction of providing mental health services would take place?
1: Yes, so this is something we've been thinking a lot about. Obviously, there's no resources for the kind of situation that you describe. I mean, very limited resources for the kind of situation that uh, you describe. So I think what we've thought about, and other organizations too, is is a kind of tiered system where essentially there's a first layer where um, we we wanted to have people working for the organization who had more literacy with mental health, were more trained to recognize symptoms. Then we wanted to create situations that allowed... Um, the community, the Rohingya, to 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 start identifying what they might need help with. So one example is that FIVDB has an amazing track record. Um, What's that? Uh, FIVDB, Friends in Village Development, mm-hmm. Bangladesh. The abbreviation is FIVDB. Has a track record spreading education uh, throughout Bangladesh to to bring it up for communities, adults and children alike. And one of the methods that they use. To transmit information is interactive theater. So they they've used interactive theater in the Rohingya camps that they administer or that they oversee to to talk about things like child marriage because the average uh, marriage age for the Rohingya used to be twelve or thirteen, or to talk about things like here is what you can do in the camp to get uh, help with uh, your medical problems. So. When we saw that, we also saw that this was an opportunity to integrate mental health literacy for the Rohingya in a way that was respectful of the culture of uh, the organization that we were advising. Um, but so it's it's sort of a recognition that at the very first level, you're working with people who have gone through trauma, who may need to talk about it, that their reactions that you may have when people talk about trauma, just like you were. Uh, you had a reaction, right, when you read. Right. We were about, talking before we went ex- on the air. Exactly. So So sort of thinking about how the emotional reaction that people may have to trauma stories may be to want to distance themselves. So we normalize that for the workers, but we also help them validate uh, and then also give very uh, specific skills to people so that they can engage in activities of daily
0: living. So, I was thinking about compassion fatigue, and we've done segments on this show before about nurses uh, and people in the medical profession uh, who will have kind of a secondary trauma from constantly mm-hmm. dealing mm-hmm. and and so is that what you're referencing? Yes. in the, we mm-hmm.
1: we talked about that uh, he, immediately. Mm-hmm. so so this was one of the mandates that we had uh, in a way set set for ourselves that we we would absolutely address that. Um, and um i w- I would say that, you know in a sense it really requires education to 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 even uh, to have some people acknowledge that so there was a kind of generational split in a sense a lot of the newer Bangladeshi workers who were uh, part of the organization to to be community workers had no problem um, talking about, about their feelings but myself mm-hmm. so I think that, this is something I have a lot of experience with as a child, psych- as a child psychiatrist um, and a clinician. I was worried about the scope, obviously, and I wasn't worried about my reaction. I was worried about whether my reaction would render me less helpful. you know. And I would say that in general, um, I was very lucky that the first time I went with uh, this trainee who was very psychologically minded, so we formed a team where we debriefed each other uh, on a regular basis. And the second time, I was more used to what to expect.
0: Dr. Patel, you've been there, uh, I read, at least seven times uh, in the past year and a half. Um, how How are you doing?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, I'm used to the Indian subcontinent and some of the, uh, you know, day-to-day life, you know, just the amount of people, the um, uh, the travel, the traffic, you know, all these other things that kind of may cause wear and tear, Um, heat, uh, you know, sitting in 95-degree heat and for eight hours uh, in in these tents doing some of the interviews that I've had to do. Um, So I think that's one layer that's very important is that um, having those coping ways, uh, coping methods for that day-to-day and um, other life, and then even the travel going there, it's, you know, 30 hours to go there. Um, And then Getting to your question about then some of the um, information related to what you're hearing, you know, of the violence on a daily basis or seeing that immensity of poverty and and, um, uh, many people hurt in one area. Um, You know, I think there's, again, coping mechanisms. I I was just there. I came back on Saturday night. Um, You know, I've been there almost every six weeks just lately for some of the projects going up. Um, and I think it's really important uh, for myself and the, just as a message for future individuals that are going out there is to really engage in a mental health system. And so, um, you know, I found a clinical psychologist that I go to every week, um, very importantly, for preventing any mental health um, fatigue or compassion fatigue or um, issues. And then also, you know, having that debriefing afterwards. And very importantly, like sitting down with that clinical psychologist and, and her team on also what, what I'm seeing. I had them read some of the reports.
0: Mm-hmm. We have about just over a minute left. Um, before we went on the air, you'd mention, uh, of course, that St. Louis has a large Bosnian community and uh, many refugees uh, resettled here in St. Louis. And um, what is the international response to what's going on in Myanmar, in about a minute?
2: Uh, so the international response is both humanitarian, so the response for food, water, shelter, protection, and then some of the question may be alluding to also- crimes. just the, uh, Yeah, the I, crimes mm-hmm. itself, so the, the atrocity crimes of ethnic cleansing um, and crimes against humanity. I think there are multiple judicial mechanisms that have been triggered. To review the case and then um, to see what are the avenues for justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think there will be justice?
2: I will. I think justice comes in multiple forms, and I think that you know the most important thing is do the Rohingyas feel like they're getting justice? And I think. Um, with the, you know, with my very initial interaction, some forms of justice were them being able to tell their story, and that is also why they're so willing to tell their story is because they want the world to hear what they did. And I'm actually part of an authored report of, please tell the world what they have done to us. That's the title of our report with Physicians for Human Rights. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there will be justice in several forms.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, you both so much for being with us, Uh, Dr. Rupa Patel and Dr. Ann Glowinski of Washington University School of Medicine. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.